I don't know if you know where Halloween comes from. It's a Celtic or pagan holiday celebrated originally in Ireland uh, on the eve of November 1st, which was just thought to be the end of the cycle of summer and warmth and light. The leaves are falling, temperatures are dropping, night is growing. The hallowed eve before a new year or a new cycle, the beginning of something new, was called Samhain in Celtic traditions. And it was just also thought that the spookiness of all those natural changes meant that the barrier between the living and the spirit side was uh, more open. And so I think that's how it kind of evolved into being something that included ghosts or seances and contacting spirits or, or deceased loved ones. And we just like to think about that in Day of the Dead. And every year I try to find something that I'm curious about related to the dark side of human nature or something, something like that's a little bit more maybe taboo or uncomfortable or mysterious. But tonight I thought we would just talk about fear. I think there's two meanings of fear. I think one applies to the acute reflex when you're encountering danger. So like if a snake jumps out at you or you open a cabinet and a big spider drops down and you instinctively back up, that's reflexive. But there's a different kind of fear that's more emotional when we're running like a low grade dread or worry or anxiety. And it, it's accompanied by a lot of thoughts about fear of failure, fear of the unknown, fear of dying, fear of being alone, fear of rejection. But what I want to get into tonight a little bit is, is it really being alone or being rejected that we're afraid of? Or, or is there some fundamental thing that all of those kind of thoughts portend? And if we could unravel that, we might find that there is like some kind of bedrock fear or final fear. I came across a quote recently that we can consider or contemplate throughout our conversation tonight from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You undoubtedly um, have heard of her work, The Five Stages of Grief, studying not people losing loved ones, but patients losing their lives and the experiences that they described as they came to accepting or came to a place of acceptance or were trying to make peace with their terminal illness. But her quote is this, there are only two emotions, love and fear. Every other kind of emotion where you might say, well, there's sadness and anger. I think what she means by that, that they're all variations on the themes of love, that which we would call positive. Uh, something like happiness. People are happy when they are loving or feeling loved and supported and, and that they belong. And everything else that we could feel on the negative side, confusion associated with fear. What's gonna happen? Because I don't know this person. Or embarrassment, fear of not belonging and not being accepted. Now, that resonated with me and, and gave me pause because I, at one time I was considering that maybe the opposite 
of love is indifference. And that kind of makes sense on some levels. And I, I think talking about the opposites of things when it comes to emotion is also just kind of a semantic maze anyway, because when you get out of the realm of mathematics, you're just like, you're just talking about philosophical concepts. But if somebody is indifferent, they're not really opposed to being in love. You know, you could think back to like the night before you met the person that was the love of your life. You're obviously indifferent to that person the night before, but so close to beginning your courtship. Whereas with fear, you're actually moving in the opposite direction. You're moving away from that connection and uh, the opportunity to understand somebody. It's actually a barrier to love. And we're going to investigate that. So another way to think about this statement from Kubler-Ross is that love is maybe our natural condition. When you remove fear and all the so-called negative emotions, what you're left with is loving happiness or loving kindness. Now, to test this, think about something that you, you believe makes you happy. A person, a situation, a job, the car you want. I mean, how many times through our life from childhood have we said, once I got this, I'll be all right. I'll be good. I'll be happy. Or the kids tell your kids telling you this, I just want this one thing and then I'll stop bugging you. So we think that when we get that, that made us happy or that made us feel loved because that person came into, into our life. But what if it's just a symbol that reminds us to give ourselves permission to stop doing something? You eat some food and we feel like I got something out of this. But what if what we're really getting from that is the relief of the hunger. The hunger is ending. And when you get your desires fulfilled, it feels though you acquired something, but you really lost the desire temporarily, ordinarily. And that becomes the root of all of this hedonic treadmill. But if a person understands that, you can really understand a lot of the problems that we get into. I was having a conversation with people recovering from addiction and, you know, they were telling me, I, I never really thought about it like that. I, I don't know if I agree with it, but I can see how my, all my behaviors are either coming from a place of love and contentment and inner peace or insecurity. And when somebody finds himself in the pattern of addiction, they may not realize it, but they're continuously numbing the fear and feeling as though the drug, the substance or the behavior is adding something to their life. But it's really taking something away only temporarily. Therefore, it's unsustainable. And as a person continues with that habit, the same amount, the same dose of the behavior doesn't give the same relief. So that's why it becomes a maladaptive pattern or becomes a disorder. Fear is a, a primal feeling or a primal emotion on, a, on another way to understand the psychological that we share with all other animals. Again, coming from the wisdom of recovery from alcohol and substances, there's a saying uh, or an acronym, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. 
to watch out for those four things because that puts your mind in a condition where you'd be more likely to relapse. If you're hungry, you get stressed. When you get stressed, or when you experience any of those, you get stressed, and when, you, and when that happens, your brain defaults to old patterns. So people in recovery often find that after a whole lot of recovery work or learning about coping skills, when they get significantly triggered, they go back or they relapse to an old behavior and they feel like all that work was for nothing until they learn that when you get stressed, it's harder to think about the new way you want to handle your stress. Because that's what stress is. It's defaulting to a lower part of the brain that we share with all mammals. But this hungry, angry, lonely, tired also includes fear. The anger is associated with fear. And with all animals, we share these four things, food, fighting or fear or anger or aggression. Loneliness represents the, the desire for procreation or companionship that we share with all other mammals. And tired, and that acronym represents that all animals sleep. This is what makes it primal. And if you were to look at the neurological correlates when somebody's afraid, it begins in the amygdala, which is an almond-shaped structure deep in the brain that triggers four possible pathways of behavior. Fight, flight, freeze, or more recently, psychologists have added fawn. And if, you, if you're not familiar with this one, this typically unfolds when a person doesn't find any protection from the first three. When children are growing up with narcissistic, abusive parents, they sort of learn over time that fighting them isn't going to help, trying to reason with them isn't going to help, hiding isn't going to help, uh, but trying to please them, trying to make them happy might uh, diffuse the tension. And that sometimes gets wired into a person, person's brain who grows up around that kind of trauma and can be acting that out even in adulthood, even when there's not a significant or imminent threat. They default to trying to make a person happy, people pleasing. Fear is, like I said before, more of a, of a reflex and the acute in the chronic sense, it's more of a symptom of anxiety disorders like PTSD, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. Now, generalized anxiety disorder and the fear, the fears that people exhibit is an overestimation of threats. So our acute fear response is that is signaling that there's something about to harm us. And then the brain starts to identify patterns associated with harm. But sometimes our brain exaggerates or imagines a threat. An example of this in like PTSD with war veterans, let's say a combat veteran encountered a garbage can containing an explosive and it blows up and somebody else on his team is killed. It's conceivable then that the soldier would feel some reaction to seeing garbage cans. But in some cases that becomes so pronounced or so overgeneralized that the, the veteran might not be able to go around any garbage cans and therefore can't drive down the street, can't leave the house because you'll undoubtedly encounter this. Or a person gets bit by a dog 
and ends up fearing all dogs instead of that dog or the situation that arose with that particular dog. So th these are examples. And to that end, one psychologist at the University of Minnesota created a computer uh, paradigm to try to test for this, to test the overestimation of threat in people with anxiety disorders. It's called the uh, digital fear farm. And in this game, you control a digital farmer and the farmer leaves a shed and has two pathways to go to the field and harvest some crops. And the way the game works is that you succeed or win at the game when you can harvest the most crops. If you take the short route, sometimes you get an elect a painful electric shock. If you take the long route, you will never get shocked. The long route is safe then. However, when you take longer to get to the crops, some digital birds come and start eating the crops and then you get less of a harvest and are less likely to win the game or succeed at the game. And this actually is a pretty, pretty good simplification but simulation of what it's like to have an anxiety disorder. A person with anxiety will tell you, I mean, someone just told me the other day, I really have so many places I want to go to and dream vacations, but I won't fly because it triggers too much fear and anxiety. So anyways, what Lissick, Dr. Lissick, who conducts these experiments, finds is that he can measure where a person's at in their recovery based on how they do in this game. So what happens when the patient is playing the game before you get shocked on the short route, a symbol appears on the screen that will indicate whether or not you'll make it safely on the short route or if a shock's coming. And in time, the, the subject realizes this symbol indicates danger and they take the long route because they don't want to get shocked. And there's another symbol that indicates you're all clear to go. And there's other kinds of symbols that still communicate safety, but kind of look like the symbols that arise when, when danger is coming. And people with anxiety disorders, when they see the symbol that's communicating, you're all good to take the short route, they still take the long route. Which means the brain has a maladaptive pattern because that's no longer effective for optimizing your well-being you get less food, you get less harvest because of the, uh, the fear response that's overestimating or overgeneralizing the threat. And when people make progress, when veterans with PTSD make progress and play Dr. Lissick's game, he knows if the treatment or the intervention is working or if they have to try other things based on whether or not the subject can take the short route when the symbol that kind of resembles the danger symbol is communicating safety and they can proceed towards the crops without um, avoiding. So when our response goes too far, that's when we know there's a problem. There's a, a story of a, of a young prince who had a phobia of chickens and believed irrationally that he was a worm. And therefore, anytime 
there was a chicken, he was terrified. And the young prince kept hiding under a table. And the king put out a request, uh, a reward to anybody that could retrain his son and uh, cure his anxiety so that he could come out from under the table and be the prince and not be afraid of chickens. And nothing was working. He kept believing that he was uh, a worm. People were trying exposure therapy, but anytime he got close to the chicken, he got terrified and would run back under the table. Finally, some other young boy convinced him that he was a prince and not a worm. And, uh, and, and got the reward. But as soon as he came close to a chicken again, he went right back to exhibiting fear and ran under the table again. And the king asked the young boy, I, I thought you cured his belief of being a, a worm. And the young prince said, I know I'm not a worm. I, I, I've, I've given up that irrational belief. But does the chicken know this? <laughs> There's another story about a criminal who was arrested for a series of crimes and was told and understood that they warranted a death sentence. But he came before a noble king who would decide his fate. And the, the king gives him two choices for his punishment. Uh, he says, you can be hung. And he shows him the, the noose and the place. Or there's a door. And in this case, in the palace, it's, a, it's down a dark corridor. It's a huge, scary door with iron bars. And deal with whatever's behind it. But once you go through that door, there's no coming back. So the prisoner, the criminal, chooses hanging. And as they're preparing the noose around his neck, he asks the king, he's like, you know, just out of curiosity, what was my fate if had I chose uh, the door? And uh, the king's like, I can't tell you that, you know. I don't want to disturb your mind. Now it's just a matter of, you know, making peace with, with your fate. And the prisoner or the criminal is telling the king, I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, this would put my mind at ease, just knowing that I could let go of all the what ifs. So he's expecting to tell him, you know, there's a tiger, there's like four tigers that would rip you, rip you apart or something like that. It'd be a horrible, painful mauling, being mauled to death or something like that where there's a vat of hot acid or something that we poured on. And the king's like, eh, it's just an exit from the palace. You would have just been free. Wow. And uh, the, the point of the story is that you know, we think sometimes that the fundamental fear is fear of death. But clearly, it's not. Because this person, and we could all probably conceive of a situation where we choose death over pain, over, over even the prospect of pain. Obviously, suicide is, is prevalent in our society. The suicidal ideation is increasing. This is alarming. Doesn't it say something about the hierarchy of fears that 
life could be so painful that a person would choose to end it over living and enduring whatever they believe is behind that door, the door to life. So I would say that there's something about pain or suffering that has primacy over existing even. But what I do want to explore is whether or not all these fears can be categorized, categorized or not. When you, when you poll people, they give you all kinds of answers, but still the number one fear is public speaking. But I don't think that fits into a hierarchy of fears because there's actually nothing about what I'm doing that's particularly dangerous. Uh, but Seinfeld jokes, you may remember this, that because the second most common fear is death, First is public speaking, second is death. So his joke was, if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving you your <laughs> But I want to pull on the threads of what, what all these random fears and phobias mean. Because if we say like, no, fear of snakes or arachnophobia, fear of uh, spiders is my number one fear. Or fear of heights, acrophobia. Is there something about being high that harms us? I mean, being at higher altitude? No, it's what that represents. From a high altitude, I could fall and what? Meet with pain, a painful death. So I think when you keep pulling on the threads of all the branches of fear, you get to one trunk and one root. And I want to see, explore what that could be. Okay, so if fear is indicating something bad, something harmful, or something threatening, or that's what our brain is telling us. Even though it's always imagined, because if you could be afraid, that means you're not actually in the harm yet. Once you're being attacked, then you're reacting in angry or, or enraged or fighting. But what we think of as fear is the imagination that something is coming, either immediately or even years down the road. The fear that I'll be alone when, when I'm old, you know, or the fear that I'll be sick when I'm old and no one be there to take care of me. That's not immediate, hopefully, but it's still imagined. And, and if it means danger, then why would people seek it out you know? or, or tolerate it, let alone seek it out in the form of like horror or horror media or horror films? There was a recent study done that showed that people with an affinity for horror movies fared better in the, in the pandemic over the last few years in terms of preparedness and psychological resilience. Why do you think that is? Oh. They've already imagined it, or if they've seen it in front of them in the movies or the books that they've yeah, it could, it could be like a kind of virtual reality tester where you get some practice on a subconscious level to deal with you know, really unexpected, unwanted circumstances. Yeah. So it takes away the element of surprise. Sure, it takes away the element of surprise. But you know, on some level, our brain doesn't have a bank or storage for the memories that weren't real. This is how people can have secondary trauma or um, compassion fatigue, 
secondary traumatic stress, if you work in a helping profession, like police officers, first responders, clinicians, some of us here are clinicians. And it has a cumulative effect sometimes, so we don't always see it coming. It can sneak up on a person. But it is because it's not quite the same as directly experiencing it, but hearing the stories uh, still goes somewhere in, in, uh, into our psyche, in our subconscious, into our lower brains. And yeah, it, experiencing these scenes, either on TV or in, in music or in other types of media, it either desensitizes some people, prepares some people. In the that um, popular podcast, Dirty John, which was also, I think, uh, made into a film on Netflix, the daughter in the first season, Deborah's daughter, Tara, was saying that she was able to survive the attack from the murderous con man because she was binging Walking Dead. And the scene, I know she's talking about when I, uh, when I recall how he was stabbing her and he, she bit him in a way that he didn't expect. But there was a scene in The Walking Dead where Rick bites his attacker in the neck and it was just a survival instinct that like a person wouldn't expect. If you study some martial arts or some MMA, there's some moves that you can't do in tournaments. But if you were in a real life or death situation, of course, those are on the table. I mean, this was a reason why Bruce Lee wasn't so into tournaments because he's like, that's not how a fight would be. If, if you're really in a fight, everything's, everything's, if you're trying to kill me, I can kill you in any way, you know, in self-defense. So anyways, she was watching this over and over and over, these horror scenes or zombie gore. And she said she didn't even have to think about it. She just instinctively knew what to do and got the knife back from him. And the guy's like two, three times her size. And yeah, it was, it was like a miracle, but because of all of that subconscious preparation, she was able to survive. That episode is called, She Fought Like Hell. <laughs> Why else do people like being, being afraid? seek it out in a safe way for reasons see what you think about this um, the first reason is an excitation transfer theory being afraid is close to a lot of other so-called positive feelings there's a lot of overlap in emotions which makes sense when you come back to the idea that there's only two love and fear but arousal or attraction or excitement, excitement, anticipation. We don't necessarily think those uh, to be bad feelings, but they have some of the same biological or physiological correlates of fear. There was a study done um, in British Columbia where people were to be interviewed by a researcher in a park out in nature. And the groups were divided into a control group and an experimental group. The control group has a very calm path to meet the researcher in the park. The experimental group has to take a bridge over a gorge, like a rickety bridge. So their blood pressure goes up, their pupils start to dilate, their um, heart rate goes up. And then the real experiment is the researcher 
and they set it up ahead of time that the researcher is either of the opposite sex or whatever their sexual orientation is. The researcher is that. And the researcher offers their number and asks to go out on date. Well, the people that had the calm walk to meet that researcher, call them, call them and, uh, and take them up on the offer for a date 17% of the time. The people who walked over the bridge call the researcher 87% of the time. And it's because they misinterpret their fear response for arousal and attraction and excitement with the flirting. So, so much of our emotions come down to our cognitive appraisal of what's going on in our bodies. So that may be one. It actually feels kind of good to have some of those experiences depending on how you interpret it. And with the framing of this is totally safe, I'm going to a haunted house, but I know nothing's gonna harm me. That's kind of fun for a lot of people. But the one thing I think that's weird about this is people who do enjoy scary movies often don't like having scary dreams. But I would think that would be the ultimate scary movie. You can actually be in the movie and know ahead of time that you're totally safe. But, but just like waking life, the mind can never deny reality when it's in the dream and it cannot deny reality when, when we're awake. So it no longer is like a movie. The second one though, the possibility is that there's a positive sensation that comes when the movie ends or when the haunted house or the scary situation is resolved. Just as, as is the case with a person that's actually in danger and then is uh, freed from that danger, they would experience relief. And the relief is sometimes what the brain associates with the most the feeling of that stimulus going away. And that's kind of equivalent to feelings of pleasure and joy. A third possibility, also this affects males more than females. They associate greater arousal in the scary movie with greater delight at, at that film. A third possibility is that there is conscious or unconscious rehearsal, like we talked about in mastery. But as in the legacy of our ancestors, we get these risk-free methods to vicariously experience apocalypses, uh, high-level crime, murder mystery, alien invasions, and all kinds of attacks, and get a sense of how we might survive or escape. And the final possibility, which I think is most interesting is that it's an opportunity to explore the dark side of humanity. Meaning that in this modern era, society or government or whoever tells us or creates the veneer that we're all safe, that you can trust one another, that there's a system in place that will protect you. And for the most part, Part, and also depending on your demographic, you do get shielded from this idea that underscoring all that or undermining, I should say, are still really immoral intentions. And since we do get shielded from that more so than our ancient ancestors, 
it can be an opportunity to actually safely explore that. But 20 years ago in the Journal of Imagination, Cognition and Personality, Dr. Fischoff and his colleagues surveyed over a thousand people about their favorite monster and the psychological appeal of that monster from different movies. Now, the monsters or villains of horror films actually represent a kind of cultural zeitgeist decade to decade. And sure enough, older people pick Karloff's Frankenstein and non-slashers. And then people from like the 70s and 80s and beyond start with like Norman Bates to uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Slasher and Freddy Krueger to like Hannibal Lecter and so on. But the reasons that they described in this study are it's an opportunity to vicariously and safely explore the dark side of the human condition. The other appeal of these monsters or, or demon personalities, it was twofold. For the older people, it was either a pity or a sympathy or their intelligence. I mean, I, I, I can see why you would have sympathy for Frankenstein. If you've seen young Frankenstein, they really make him a humorous, sympathetic character. <laughs> but Gene Wilder <laughs> screaming at, at somebody saying, not to help him up a cliff, saying he wants to do it himself. You know, even like Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think you can sympathize with some of the backstory of some of these characters. And then when it comes to the slashers, the appeal is more their, their prowess at killing. So it's, it's all interesting. Monsters, demons, cryptozoological beasts, and so, so on, they're all fantasy and imagination. Before the Industrial Revolution, I would imagine were constant fears for people because the world was so mysterious. Now we live in an era where everything feels mapped out and we want everything programmed and categorized. And it really takes away that openness, that spirit, that spirit of mystery. People would go into a forest and I bet they just thought anything could be in here. If you ever go like into a great wilderness, like in remote parts of California or Colorado, your instincts from our ancestors will still kick in. If you start thinking of the bear, the bear starts to manifest in every sound. Is that bear? Is that rustling the bear? And that's what our fears do to us, which is why I think there's a paradox of fear that can be described with two analogies. I was looking at some of the more bizarre types of phobias. Again, phobias are clinical disorders where a person's irrational fear creates a problem and an impairment in their ability to live well. The one that stood out to me is called barophobia. It means fear of gravity. And you can imagine how troubling that would be to live with that as a phobia. Bear is the root word of barometric, which is a, a measure of pressure. So that's how it became the term for fear of gravity. So I went on to a Reddit forum with people with barophobia to see what they talk about. 
And they describe mostly one of two things, that they're terrified that gravity will get stronger and crush them or pull a boulder onto them because it's getting so strong that like the house will collapse and stuff like that. Or two, that the inverse will happen. It'll get so weak that they take a, a step and step right off the earth and be lost in space. Now here's where, where, why I, I find this to be an analogy for the paradox of fear itself. If you have an irrational fear of gravity, your fear becomes the gravity, right? Isn't fear itself a mental gravity that holds you back? And what does it hold you back from? Uh, a handful of things. You can't grow because the fear is, is pulling you, is tying you down. And to grow, you have to go out. You have to explore the unfamiliar, the uncertain. You have to have an adventure. You can't love because that which you're afraid of, you can't understand. And without understanding, our fears make that something that uh, we develop an aversion for. You can't be happy. The fear is like the clouds that cover up the, the blue sky. If we said, like we said before, if happiness is our natural state, um, we have something that we think makes us happy, but really that happy, that happy thing gave us permission to stop wanting. And when we stop wanting, we rest as our true nature, peace, contentment, happiness. And you can't succeed because to succeed, you have to try. One of the roots, etymological roots of fear is P-E-R in Proto-Indo-European languages. Per, evolved into fur, fear. And we see it in the word experiment. So the origin, the original meaning of fear is to try or to risk. And that's the thing that the person with fear doesn't want to do. So from per, we get words like experiment. Experiment gives you experience, gives you expertise. So the way through fear is to try, to risk, to take on and embrace failure. And that leads to success, which is reflected in the word expert, expertise. Other words for fear was revere in Old English. This is probably why some Christians talk about the fear of God being a good thing. But if fear is the opposite of love, how is that good? Can you really love the parent that you're terrified of? Can the child feel love for the parent that, that wants to harm them? If we were afraid of God, it would be hard to love God. But if it evolved from revere, well, that kind of makes sense. Revere in the sense that, oh, there's so much awe to whatever the, the creator is or the, uh, the, the whole universe, the whole creative power of the universe or nature is awesome. But that's another way to think about fear, that it's not something to evade, it's something to go towards. Because by going into that mystery, you actually get to encounter that which, from spiritual perspective, you're trying to understand and trying to love. It's always confusing to me to hear somebody say, you gotta love God. How can you love something you don't know? What is God? Where is God? 
So I think even prior to having love for God, you'd have to try, you'd have to go lean into fear. Well, I don't know what that is, but I know that I'm scared of something. So it's an opportunity to go into it. And that leads to the final thing that the gravity of fear prevents, which is wisdom. And wisdom isn't something that we go out and grab just by getting older and adding experiences to our life. Wisdom is something that's revealed by carefully deconstructing and removing our illusions. So elderhood is beautiful, but it, it's not something that you just automatically become. It's something that gets revealed, I think, in, in different traditions when there is an elder, it's somebody that isn't just old, otherwise it would just be called olderhood, but somebody that has done the work. And they're probably older because this shit doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> then the second analogy, a prison. Fear is a prison of the mind. But here's why it's a paradox, because the person that has their irrational fears and doesn't conquer their fears, starts building more and more barriers to the threats. So a person that gets wealthier and wealthier has more and more to lose. Therefore, they have more security, they hire bodyguards, they build taller walls, taller fences. And at some point, what looks like a fortress to keep everyone out, all the enemies out, actually becomes something that looks quite similar to the prison that keeps the threat in, right? And we think about the hierarchy of needs. Fulfillment, self-actualization is not on level one. Level one is safety and security. If you're safe, then you're safe. But building more and more walls and pushing more and more people away doesn't suddenly make you happy. You'd have to go on and try and risk and fail and reveal what's true about the world around you. But what do people do? What does society condition us to believe? That everything is on level one. Okay, you have enough. You have enough to eat. You have enough to protect yourself and, and take care of your family. But people won't stop. They just keep going and going and going and going. And they wonder why they're insecure. Why, why is this not? And that's why I and, and other clinicians will still, you know, treat people who are wealthy, but still have anxiety, or still have irrational fears. And, and we're also trained in society to believe that if you have an abundance of material wealth, that you shouldn't be afraid anymore. But if you think of it in, in this framing that I'm talking about, you can understand why they often still are. That's the paradox, right? If you're afraid of gravity, you become the gravity. If you're afraid of what could attack you, and so you, you know, want to put those people in, in a prison, you become the prison and avoid the, the real connection, the real happiness, the real fulfillment, the real meaning, the real creativity, the real wisdom, and become a prison of, of uh, suffering the mental prison of the fear. But maybe there really is a way to categorize all these different things people say they're scared of 
into a hierarchy of fears. We talk about the hierarchy of needs, let's pivot to the hierarchy of fears before we start to wrap this up. There was a, a psychologist and philosopher, Carl Albrecht, who came up with a feararchy, and he outlines five fears. The first one is extinction. So all of these different fears, fear of failure, fear of rejection, sometimes people say it all comes down to fear of the unknown. Like, are you really scared of what your next car is going to be? It's unknown. I don't think so. So I think all these fears represent something more archetypal in us. Pain. Can it really all come down to pain? When you're playing sports and you get hit, I love playing football. If you fight, if you box, you get hit, you get pain. But I would think that most people say, yeah, it's just a whole bunch of suffering to play these games. But if it was really fear of pain, why would anybody play these games? But maybe it's when the pain comes and you can't control it. So is it all about control? I mean, maybe all these five in this hierarchy come down to control. This first one, extinction. I'm saying, can, it really, can that really be a fundamental fear? If there are people that would choose to extinct or extinguish their life rather than suffer in other ways. Fear of annihilation or ceasing to exist. The most fun, fundamental way to express this is simply fear of death. The idea of no longer being arouses a primary existential dread in all nor normal humans. Now consider that panicky feeling you get when you look over the edge on a high building. I'm not sure about this. Like I said, I think if the, the tricky thing about this is when you think of a situation that's so painful, like a terminal illness, people choose extinction. But maybe like I was saying before, there's something to the unknown or something to, to the pain. In the second one, he's saying mutilation. Now this is different than like being, feeling stressed in the body or the intensity of a workout in sports. That's not quite the same as like losing a limb or getting blown up in battle. The fear of losing any part of our precious bodily structure, the thought of having our body's boundaries invaded or of losing the integrity of any organ, body part, or natural function. We see this in, uh, in other animals, but also it can, this fear he's saying can be triggered when we encounter other animals that could do this to us. Like a bug, as tiny as it is, a bug can bite you. A tick can go inside you and invade you and create disease. A snake can bite you and inject venom into your bloodstream. And other creepy things can happen with all, all these other things in nature. What's interesting about this to me, I guess, is that everybody has a different sense of what the boundary is. There's no like, un I mean, we have the skin, but there are other boundaries that go beyond the skin that we feel you know, we get afraid of when they're invaded, emotional boundaries, psychological boundaries. But I guess the interesting part of this or where I see some, something of an illusion is that we don't lament 
the limbs that we don't have. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're good with two. Even though if you really pay attention to it, like when you're taking groceries in from the car, a friend of mine tweeted recently um, that if, if you're not fitting all the groceries into your two arms and bringing them in the house on one trip while hurting two little kids, are you even a mom? <laughs> and I get that image. But anytime you're moving stuff in the car, like I'm bringing stuff in, if you pay attention, you'll know that three or four arms would be really handy. <laughs> but we don't have too much fear or regret or dread about that. So there's some, I think, like sociological programming us that says what you do have, you don't want to lose. Anyways, we'll come back to it. The, the third one is loss of autonomy. The fear of being immobilized, paralyzed, restricted, enveloped. So you know like sleep paralysis or that feeling when you wake up and a ghost is like holding you down or it seems like an evil presence is holding you down. It's terrifying for so many people. Or claustrophobia is a specific phobia of how you lose autonomy. Being in such a confined space, you couldn't get out. You kind of feel this if you're anybody like me when you're getting an MRI in the tunnel and it's like, all right, if I had to get up or I couldn't sit up, it's a uncomfortable feeling. But here's the like philosophical reflection I'd like to offer to you. If there was a microchip that had an AI program in it and it could be inserted into your brain and it would make wise choices for your life, especially the hard choices, the big choices. Should I take this job or should I pass? Should I study this in school or study this? Because I don't have multiple loans to take out for my education. Should I marry this person or should I not? Should I stay there or should I not? Anyways, imagine this microchip could assess all of the variables that you don't know and give you a decision. However, if you install the chip, you can't override it. You have to go with the decision it makes. Raise your hand if you take that. Nobody. And that's what I would have expected. And I think I, I probably agree with you. However, let's alter this hypothesis a little bit more. Let's say over time, the scientists rolling out this new technology can pay some people enough to do it, to be the test subjects. And, you know, some hundreds of people and some thousands of people are doing the pilot with this. And your friends, become some of these people, a few of your friends. And you see the, this pilot group, you see how their lives become amazing. They make the right choices. Not, not just the right choices, they make the wisest choice, the most optimal choice. They no longer have to suffer unnecessarily. And then here I am, still struggling to figure out whether or not I should do gas or not today. <laughs> And they just breeze past all this decision-making and everything works out because the AI can weigh everything. 
And so they start becoming successful. Their relationships flourish. They're, they flourish in their career. They become happy. Their mental illness gets cured. Now, don't you think you could um, imagine a scenario where the rest of us are starting to go, yeah, maybe, maybe that's where it's at. Why, why keep suffering in the way that I am? Just because I think at least I'm in control. <laughs> And, and so I, I point this out philosophically because I think there's a scenario or there's a path to a scenario where we don't, we don't give a damn about all the control that we thought we had if by giving up autonomy, we would be happy or we would be fulfilled. So I think that the control is an illusion to begin with. We just pick and choose where we want to hang our head on control. And it's usually a very small, narrow window in the grand scheme of all the things that are totally out of control. The next one is separation. The fear of abandonment, rejection, loss of connectedness, of becoming a non-person, like as in not wanted, not respected, not valued by anyone else. The silent treatment when imposed by a group can have a devastating effect on its target. We see this with uh, excommunication, with shaming. We see this as a theme in anxiety, separation anxiety. But I read this really profound quote from Fernando Pessoa, that the feelings that hurt us the most are those that are absurd. Think about these. The longing for something impossible, precisely because it's impossible. Nostalgia for what never was. The desire for what could have been. Regret over not being someone else. Dissatisfaction with the world's existence. All of these half-tones, he says, of the soul's consciousness, create in us a painful landscape in eternal sunset of what we are. And the last one, ego death. Fear of humiliation, shame, or any other mechanism of profound self-disapproval that threatens the loss of integrity of the I-ness. The fear of the shattering or disintegration of one's constructed sense of lovability, capability, and worthiness. Nietzsche said that fear is the mother of morality. And I think what he means by that is human beings can justify why they would behave immorally, privately. They know what they want, what they would do if there were no repercussions, if we're honest with ourselves. And to some extent, we do these things maybe in smaller ways. We do something that's not fair. We engage in nepotism or favoritism. We commit white collar crimes. We keep a pen at sometimes. We forget to give back or to make things even. But this whole idea of a moral system or a legal system taps into this fundamental fear that the psychologist is pointing out here. Because public condemnation or shame is akin to the worst blow to one's ego. And it can be tantamount to ego death. 
So I have uh, thoughts about all of these, but other philosophers, and when you get into spiritual philosophy, thinkers like Jiddu Krishnamurti suggested that anything that you could categorize in, as one of one kind of fear is just a whole bunch of branches. You might have a longer branch that has a whole bunch of things on it. And then you might be able to find that there's like five big branches, like Albrecht did. But he's saying they all lead into one trunk and one root. And the spiritual aspirant has to figure out what that is and cut down the tree at the root. I think that all of this comes down to attachment. Because attachment explains why all these things can be contradicted. Why does a person um, not want to die? Because they have attachment to the body and to the idea that they are the body. In some Zen stories, um, there's, there's one about a Japanese Zen master during feudal conflict with China, remaining in a village where everyone scattered as the village was being invaded. And the general of the army invading that, that village is curious why the Zen master, the one presiding over a temple in the village, isn't scared isn't reacting as everyone else in the community does. And he wants to exert his power and his status over the master. And when they encounter, he still sees that the, the master isn't exhibiting any signs of fear. Some signs of fear are like your pupils dilate. Pupils dilate, so the brain gives that instruction so that more light comes into the retina, which gives more visual acuity. So you'd be more effective at dealing with your threat. Heart rate increases, so it pumps more blood and oxygen to the larger muscles. The hypothalamus instructs the flow of adrenaline, which redirects energy from digestion. Digestion stops, immune functioning stops. That's why you get the weird feeling in your gut because that energy is diverted to defense. So it's almost like a draft into the military. But anyways, this general is not seeing any of that in the master, the Zen master. So he tells him, you're a fool. You don't realize that standing before you is somebody, he's a really aggressive character, somebody that can run his sword right through you without blinking an eye just to kind of give a, a signal of his barbaric urges and tendencies. And uh, the monk says, well, I don't know if you realize that you're standing in front of a man that can have a sword run through him without blinking an eye. The point of that story is that through his practice, through the meditation, he lost the attachment to the body, lost the attachment to the idea that his identity is only found in his physical form. There was a, a yogi, Lahiri Mahasaya of modern India, 1800s, 1900s, who 
disseminated a technique known as Kriya Yoga. And he had a saying that attachment is the only obstacle. The fear arises, this other, only other emotion arises out of attachment. And when you come back to the fear arty, anything that we could be afraid of, fear of loss, fear of rejection, fear of losing our partner, it's because we're attached to something. And if you think of those moments where we feel safe and secure, somebody was telling me today in the hospital that I realized I feel love and happiness when I'm held by my husband. And, and she's like, and we're not even particularly close. Like she's saying, there isn't even a whole lot of sexual attraction between us, but there are these moments where we just cuddle and we both feel secure and safe and, and that kind of affection. And again, what's really happening in those moments or when somebody's saying, I love you, or when you're getting the words of affirmation, you just stop being afraid of losing the person. It's not like you acquired something again. Those words, that embrace, gives your mind permission to stop distrusting. Doesn't mean you're not gonna lose that person. How many times do people say, you know, something they don't mean, you know? Anyways, whatever it is that gives us the feeling of security is a gesture to give you permission to stop being attached. So even though we're clinging to that person physically, in that moment, we're not clinging. You've stopped clinging. The real clinging is when the person is not in the room with you. I wonder where they are. Are they thinking about me? Why haven't they called yet? That's attachment. So we think I need to be close. I need the happy thing. I need the security. I need this money. Because when we have those symbols of safety, we stop feeling attached. And you start to believe that the happiness is in those things or the safety is in those things. Fear in Sanskrit is the word apaya. A, in this case, indicates negation. So, bhaya is uh, more fundamental. Bhaya means fear, and it implies that habaya comes afterwards. We're born afraid. We come into this world and we inherit all kinds of fears. Maybe it's genetics and the stories of our ancestors. Sometimes I wonder if there is, if there are such things as past lives Maybe that explains some phobias. Why are some people terrified of heights? Never had a reason to be afraid of heights, never fell from a height. Why are some people um, afraid of elevators and closed spaces? What if you died in one of these ways in a past life? What if the fear of death is because we died before? Otherwise, what's scary about death? Death's never hurt me, hurt me before that I know of, you know? Anyways, Paya, is a compound word. Ba means to shine ordinarily. But another interpretation of pa in Sanskrit, again, one of the origins of all language, is to appear. And so you kind of understand that 
as it relates to shining because like light appears and then it disappears. But ya means one or who, so like who appears or that which appears. But another way that I'm guessing ya was, became conjoined with ba is that ya is maya in Sanskrit. And maya means illusion or maya means the divine feminine uh, that covers reality. Its literal translation, Maya, is a magic play. So it's not a bad thing. But Maya, that appears to be real and makes you attached to the unreal, it's fear. So Apaya means the removal of the illusion. Hence, the fearless person is the wise one, is the realized one. And so the, the realized or enlightened person is no different than anybody else. They haven't got anything. They just don't hold on to something the rest of us do. It looks like something special came to them, but really something special remains with the rest of us. In the Isha Upanishad of the Vedas, there's a saying, that when the self is in all and all are in the self, there's no fear. This is like the philosophy of non-duality or Advaita Vedanta, which means there's not two. So what if fear is an illusion? Because keep learning about this more scientifically, on some level, all of the multiplicity is somewhat of illusion. I think it's bad faith to act like we don't perceive multiplicity but I think it's a journey, figuring out what the matrix that we're in really is all about. So I'll conclude with a demonstration of Abhaya Mudra in Hinduism or in Buddhism. Mudra is a posture, typically with the hands. And in some statues or depictions of the Buddha or other uh, avatars or incarnations of the divine, you sometimes see them making this gesture. This is Abhaya Mudra. So if you want to try it, bring your right hand up to shoulder height. Bring the fingers together. And then with your palm, the palm in palmistry represents the heart. And so by holding it like this, you're sending a signal. It's thought biologically by holding your hand like this, you're helping to calm down your heart. So with your other hand, place it on your heart. And as you hold your hand like this, try to generate the thoughts and feelings. I come in peace. This gesture is a prehistoric gesture that indicated to other life forms that I bring friendliness. And it's also thought that because the hand is open, there's no weapon, especially in the ancient times where you would have weapons, humans would have weapons to deal with the other creatures. There's a story in the life of the Buddha that his jealous cousin, Devadatta, uh, arranged for a wild elephant to trample him. And supposedly the Buddha gave the gesture of Abhaya Mudra, and the elephant slowed down, calmed down, and greeted the Buddha. Typically, the other hand forms Jnana Mudra, which is the index finger and the thumb coming together, and lowered but open, palm facing out. So together you can see neither of my hands contain a weapon. 
And so much of, this is interesting part of Abhaya Mudra, so much of the journey to fearlessness is becoming compassionate. When you be, practice nonviolence, your fear diminishes. So much of our fear is the manifestation of what we would do. It is our own dark side, our own shadow that we jump back from. According to like psychologists like Carl Jung, that your fear is the shadow side manifested externally. And Joseph Campbell said, the cave you're afraid to enter contains the treasures that you see. So when we form this mudra, it may sound silly that making a posture with my hands could help me become fearless. But what, it, what any mudra does is it makes you more in tune with what's going on with yourself. You will start to feel the vibrations of your heart, of your nervous system. And by recognizing that, you can tell yourself, you can train yourself to be a person of nonviolence. Wait a minute. I don't want to harm myself. I don't want to harm other people. And the, the magical part of the mudra is by generating feelings of goodwill and radiating good intentions to others actually helps you overcome the, the fears that you think will become at you. And so it starts to break down the prison that we build and live in ourselves. It starts to free us from the gravity that we thought could crush us. It starts to create the harmony with gravity and the boundaries with the, with the natural world. So one more time, we'll let's do this mudra, we'll conclude with this practice, but this time I'd like you to sit straight, sit comfortably and close your eyes. Raise the right hand as if you're holding a little stone in your palm. With your left hand, place it on your thigh. Open, facing outward or upward, but with the index finger and the thumb connecting, Gyana Mudra. Now take a deep inhalation through your nose. Deep exhalation out the mouth. And repeat a few times. And as you breathe deeply, you can reflect on the thoughts, may I be peaceful. May I be free from harm and free from fear. And through the gesture in my hands, in my palms, may others come to know that I mean them no harm. And you can place both hands comfortably in your lap and you can rest for a moment. Noticing whatever comes up in the body, sending kindness and compassion to your body for any tension that it might feel, for any hurt that it might hold. And then you can gradually resume your normal breathing and when you feel ready, you can open your eyes and come back to the room. A poem by Khalil Gibran. It is said that before entering the sea, a river trembles with fear. She looks back at the path she has traveled 
from the peaks of the mountains, the long winding road crossing forests and villages. And in front of her, she sees an ocean so vast that to enter, there seems nothing more than to disappear forever. But there is no other way back. The river cannot go back. Nobody can go back. To go back is impossible in existence. The river needs to take the risk of entering the ocean because only then will fear disappear. Because that's where the river will know it's not about disappearing into the ocean, but of becoming the ocean.